May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Was it um, two weeks ago, maybe, that um, the nation's largest lottery jackpot ever was won? Something like a billion and a half dollars. A billion. I mean, that's a B billion, not M million. Billion dollars. Um, I, I, the week before, I think it was like 850 million, you know, and, and then it didn't go and, and people just rushed out and, and, uh, and bought a lot of those tickets and saw that, that jackpot that soar. You know, for, for a lot of middle class people, a million dollars is a lot of money. Um, maybe it doesn't solve all of life's problems forever, but um, it's a, a long way there. A billion, you know, a, a billion is a big number. And I remember sitting around listening to some of my friends chat about what they would do with a billion. They would ask me questions like, is it okay to pray about this? Um, I said, no, I think you should wear a disguise. Don't let God know what you're doing, you know, try to sneak by, um, you know, or lots of other questions, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the talk about, well, what would you do with it? You know, like, what would, what would that have be like? And, and of course, the first item of business was always tithing. Um, yeah, and they were always worried about what kind of car their rector might drive. But, um, and then, um, and then, you know, some other things. You know, I, I, I could see the wheels turning and, and, and my wheels turned a little bit too, I have to admit. You know, like, you know, a few bills, you know, you can get rid of a few of those things. Uh, you know, mortgage car, that sort of stuff. You know, tight, a little too much at Christmas time maybe for some people. You know, we'll tidy up that little mess too. Um, you know, kind of go through some of the things that could go on. Um, but, you know, after the ties paid, the bills, the, you know, all that sort of stuff, but taxes are settled, what next? And, and, you know, and that was where the good conversations kind of took place that I heard. Um, you know, a lot of talk about the Cayman Islands and banks. I'm not sure what that was all about, but, uh, you know, some things like that. And, and then, you know, houses like, like the ski resort in Colorado and the, and the sun resort in St. Thomas. You know, we, we got to do both sides of those and... Um, and there were automobiles and all this. And then altruism. Oh, I forgot, you know, scholarships and hospital stuff and, you know, all of that sort of things we need to do. Um, a lot of the conversation was, though, about, you know, oh, you know, the rest of the day is the good life. That's what it's going to be, the good life. A study by the University of Kentucky it was in um, conjunction with Vanderbilt University Law School and um, the University of Pittsburgh discovered that lottery winners file for bankruptcy at twice the rate of the general population. Can you believe that? Twice the rate. I looked up some people. Um, Robert and Lara Griffith, great marriage. People said they never thought that they were, you know, had just a wonderful relationship. Um, Won a lottery of $3 million. Within six years, were divorced and and filed for bankruptcy. Evelyn Adams... um, won not one, but two lotteries, back-to-back, 1985 and 1986. And today, is uh, she gambled it all away, lives in a small trailer, I think in New Jersey. Um, Michael Carroll was a garbage collector, won $15 million, and spent it on wine, women, and song, and in five years was trying to get his old job back. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people think, probably, they, you know, when, when they see a billion and a half dollar lottery, that there's, you know, that there's this great good life out there waiting for that. But there's no correlation between increased wealth and increased happiness. It simply doesn't exist. Maybe it's not wealth. Maybe it's fame. You know, this is, 
I don't need to be rich. I just want to be famous. You know, that, that's sort of a big thing in our culture. Fame. Um, it is. It is the uh, the sentiment that is exploited by social media. Right? I mean, the whole, how many people are following you? Um, how many friends do you have? And they, we're not talking about you know stalkers and um, acquaintances. We're talking about like social media, um, whatever you call those. You know, like attachments of, of persons. If you don't know what either of those things, Twitter or Facebook, are, um, how many times does your phone ring? That's the old social media, you know? Like, uh, how many people are, are reaching out to, you know, do you have this sense of fame and, um, and uh, you know, notoriety? But I got to think about how some famous people, some really famous people, found, like, their lives kind of self-destructing right before our eyes. People that you would know, um, Charlie Sheen, maybe, Lindsay Lohan. I mean, I, I hope that they kind of... Get right in. I mean, the, the last chapter certainly isn't written on them. Um, Dave Chappelle. I don't, if, if you don't know who that name is, ask somebody between 15 and 30. They know who he is, okay? So he has his show on Comedy Central. It became really popular, extremely fast, and, um, and his, the fame was overwhelming. Um, funny thing, Dave Chappelle comes from, um, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is just south of where I come from in, in Springfield. And like, you know, I know people like see him out in the streets all the time, you know, walking up and down. So he's sort of a hometown, small town guy, but he got suddenly deluged by this fame. And they were about to begin the filming of his second season, and he ran away to South Africa without telling anybody. And eventually, when they couldn't get a hold of him, they fired him. He told a reporter this, coming to South Africa, I don't have the distractions of fame. It quiets the ego down. I'm interested in the kind of person I've got to become. What a fascinating insight. You know, that that fame kind of has, you know, corrupted his own view of self-identity. And so it seems that fame, like fortune, doesn't in fact turn out to lead to the good life. Which begs the question, well, what in the world does? And I knew that you were asking that question. You were there already ahead of me, weren't you? And in the Old Testament book, the book of the prophet Nehemiah, we find something about this. Nehemiah is written, if this is uncharted territory for you, it's written about 450 years before the birth of Jesus. It describes the, the memoirs, it is actually the memoirs, of this fellow called Nehemiah who um, talks about some work that he does in Jerusalem. But just a little bit of history. Not a lot, just a little. There'll be a quiz over it later, don't worry. But um, here's what happened in Israel, in the southern area of Israel, in, in Jerusalem, in the southern part, which is called Judah, later called Judea, um, there, was a, there was a time where this other nation, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, the leaders of Babylon came in with their army and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And when you fought wars in the ancient world, especially ancient Asian wars, the way that you kind of prevented the guerrilla warfare that would surely follow is that you would deport the people who live there. You see, as in present day, just like in ancient day, they knew that winning a war wasn't as big a deal as trying to keep the peace afterward. So the way they solved it was to just deport all the people who live there. You just took them out, you chained them up, you put them in like rolling cages and made them walk, and you drugged them away from their homes. This is what happens in Jerusalem. Um, and then you move other people in. Now what normally happens with the people who are moved out is they begin to assimilate and fall into place with their new culture. You know, people who lived in Jerusalem now live in Babylon, they'll become Babylonians after a, a generation or two. But not so with these people from Jerusalem. They were stubborn. They, they, they chose to live in squalor and ghettos rather than give up their ethnic identity. 
they thought they were something important about. They weren't really sure. But they, so they, they sort of led lives that were separate from the, and they refused to assimilate. Well, a strange thing happens. Another nation, Persia, modern day Iran, invades Babylon. How about that? Iran and Iraq are fighting ancient wars. It's like things never change, you know, like we, we've heard this story before. Well, Persia's stronger, tougher back in those days. They overrun Babylon and they discover that there's this group of people called Jews who are living there in the city and they don't want to live there. They want to go home. And the Persians are like, well, that makes total, total sense. So go on home. You know, we own that property, too. So you'll enjoy that. Go on back. And, and they do. Fifty years, they're in captivity, and they get back to their home, and guess what they find? Everything's ruined. Homes are torn down. The city walls that are important for security are gone. And the temple, the place where God resides, burned to the ground. It's a mess. And so they try rebuilding the temple, and it's smaller, and it's not as attractive. It doesn't have as much gold. It's kind of unimpressive. They build some houses. They never build the wall back, and so they're living in constant insecurity, and that's where Nehemiah comes in. Nehemiah hears the story. He hears what's going on in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah has this really great job. He is the chief of staff for the king of Persia. And he kind of goes to the king of Persia and says, you know, the Lord's put it on my heart to go back. Is it okay if I do that? The king says, how long? Not long, a few months. Sure, go on back. And in just seven weeks, Nehemiah encourages people and they build the wall around the city. And it looks like everything is, is now fixed. You know, we have a temple. We have homes. There's walls around the city. We're all safe and secure and sound. <gasps> the good life. But you know it's not that easy. <laughs> you know it's not that easy. Enter a priest called Ezra. Ezra is the priest in, in the town of Jerusalem that day. And Ezra goes out into the city square and says, we're going to have a town meeting. I want to call it town hall, but probably not that. We're going to have a town meeting. And all the people of the city get out there and they begin to beg Ezra, read to us from the Bible. Read the Bible to us. We haven't heard the Bible for years. We, we don't even know what's in the Bible. Will you read the Bible to us? And so Ezra gets a big platform like this one that I'm on. And he opens up the scroll and he reads the Bible. You're going to love this. Six hours. Which is about how long this service is going to go on this morning. No, I'm just joking. It's a six hours. Six hours he's up there reading. But he's not just reading. He'll stop and he'll do what I'm doing right now. And he, he begins to interpret. This is what this means. And this is what this means. And he has a bunch of like, um, you know, helpers. And they go out into the people and they begin to discuss and have little small group meetings out there. And then they come back up and he reads some more. And they continue to go through this little town of, time of, of reading and instruction. And here's what happens. The people begin to hear this story that God created humanity and, and innocence. And humanity rebelled against God. And God told them, look, you can't do this. You know, if you rebel against me, there's always going to be a problem. You're going to be exiled from the garden. And then God says, well, I'm going to save humanity through the life of this man named Abraham and his family. Your great, 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 great grandfather. And if you live by what I say, you'll live in this land and you'll have the good life. But if you don't, you're going to be exiled from this place. People are going to come and drag you out. And suddenly people began to say, you mean that's why we were in Babylon? That's why the Babylonians were able to overtake us? Because we rebelled against God? We rejected? Why didn't someone tell us? 
And I can just hear Nehemiah saying, hey, listen, somebody told you, you know, uh, let me give you names like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Jonah and Micah. Somebody kept telling you, people kept telling you. And you know what you did every time somebody told you? You killed them. <laughs> they told you. And what do you think happened to the people? They began to mourn and weep. What have we done? We have, our, we have a temple back, not as nice. We have our homes back, not as nice. We have a wall, at least we have some security. But what have we done? What have we done to our generations? What have we done to, to our families and our, our nation? Why, why did we do this? And they begin to weep and mourn. And Ezra steps in and says, stop, stop, stop. There's a time for mourning and weeping, but that's not now. Today's a holy day. Today's a holy day. This is the day when you should have a party. Go home, open up the, 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 the vineyard, the, you know, go down in the basement, pull out the bottles of wine, bring them upstairs, open up the, re- the refrigerator if you have one, and, um, you know, pull out, pull out the, the, the best meat that you have preserved. And if there's poor people in your, in your neighborhood, you go get them and you invite them over and throw a party because today is a holy day. God's people recognized from whence they came And they remember how to get back home. And that's a great time to celebrate. I think the wall is a great metaphor for Israel's need for security. See, their their, their need for security wasn't to defend themselves against the outside enemies. It was to, to secure their identity as the people of God living under the authority of God. That's what brought security. That's what brought the good life. Maybe you're way ahead of me because I know how smart you all are. Fire higher IQs than me. And so you're beginning to think, perhaps, and if you're not, maybe you should, um, you know, um, hmm, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of correlations between ancient Israel and, and, and modern day Christianity in the Western world. I mean, what would it take for us to have a, a real revival of spirituality in our world, in our day? I mean, what would a revival of spiritual fervor look like in our country and, and, and in the Western world, in other countries? Well, I think every single real revival begins with this. That we hear, that we understand, and that we apply the Word of God to our lives. If you were real careful to read the text that was read this morning, the Old Testament lesson, you know what people began to do? They began to give. They started giving to the, to the treasury of the, of the temple. They began to give to, to one another. Uh, they began to separate themselves from pagan religion. Oh no, we've, we've just kind of bought into all this paganism around us. Not the people, but the religions. They began to separate themselves from that. Um, they began to, uh, to start keeping the Sabbath. Recognizing that the Sabbath was important as a part of God's plan, they began to embrace the Bible in every aspect of their lives. That the Bible became this important guide for how to live. Short way of saying this, Israel began to remember their story, and I think for us, that's where it begins as well. That we have to remember the story, the biblical story. We have to find ourselves in this story. I've had people say to me, Oh, I always like it better when you do the gospel or the New Testament rather than the Old Testament. You know, like, I really don't much care for the Old Testament. It's a lot of, a lot of stuff I don't understand. I don't much like. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Maybe you're good at that. You can't understand the Old Testament unless you, or the New Testament unless you understand the Old. It makes no sense. It stands out as absolutely, you know, moronic. You have to understand the story in order to put ourselves in it. 
The Bible isn't a book of, of esoteric charms. It's a narrative, a big, long story. And we have to find ourselves in that story. How do we find real revival, real spiritual revival in our world? I know, this is going to sound crazy. This is insane. I know. Hold on to yourself. It's not going to come from your politicians. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. They are not people who are looking for spiritual revival. They're people who are looking for power. Power for themselves. Oh, not my person. Yes, your person. I'm afraid that it is. Whatever side, whatever person, there's, I know there's a, you know, 27 or 28 people running for president. All of them, they're all looking for power. Let me, let me just tell you. I, I want you to hear the messages, whatever message you're hearing, right or left, center, wherever you find yourself in the spectrum. I want you to, I want you to gauge what you're hearing in our world against these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the left also. If anyone would sue you for your tunic, give him your coat. Do not refuse anyone who would beg from you or would ask you to borrow money. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth that moth and rust corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How does that stuff jive with what we hear in the the concourse of, of political life? The good life is not found in bravado or revenge or power, and dignity is not found in defiance or self reliance. It's found in living by a different standard. Living biblically. And you know what? Living biblically sounds really good and sweet and pure, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I want to live by the Bible. Until we actually open it up and begin to read it. And we're like, oh, my word. You know, like, that really kind of gets at it. You know, like, I I was all ready to live biblically until I saw what the Bible said. And now I don't know. Hosea, before the exile. Hosea says, the word of God says this, that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. This is why people are destroyed, because they just don't know. See, I think everyone is looking for the same thing. Everyone. Everyone in this room, everyone in this town, everyone in this state, country, and world, we're all looking for the same thing. We want happiness that comes from the good life. That's what we want. We want to be... Now, some people feel like, I want happiness, but I don't deserve happiness. So they do all kinds of self-destructive things. Other people say, I want happiness, and I really do deserve it. And so they pout when any sort of adversity comes their way. You know, but most of us live somewhere in between those spectrums, right? We, we live in a world where we want happiness, but it doesn't always come to us. And here's part of the problem. Our internal compass is all messed up. It goes the wrong direction. And we listen to all the voices around us, and none of them are telling us the right things. The good life, the happy life, is found in submitting ourselves to the revealed Word of God. When, when a priest is ordained, you know what they do to us? They stick a Bible on top of our heads, like this, to remind us that we are to live under the authority of the Word of God. But it's not just for me. It's for all of us that we live under the authority of the Word of God. And that when we do that, we find what we're really looking for. Real joy, real happiness, real fulfillment in life. And we find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.